Now, where I'm picking up is basically in the middle of a thought. Uh, we've left off two weeks ago, because last week we had Josh share with our Youth Servant Sunday. Um, but uh, I'll backtrack a little bit, explain context, and then it's really going to set us up for where we're going. And in fact, as my overhead notes, it, this is actually part one of two, at least in this section. It's four verses. It's a great portion. It's really almost like a parenthetical thought. The writer's talking about one thing, and he kind of stops and says, oh, I, I got some stuff I want to talk to you about, uh, and then he'll come back to it. But for us, we're going to take two weeks. So really, we'll just unpack uh, deeply the first two verses, and then last uh, next Sunday, I'll come back. And, and there are some things that the Lord has weighed upon my heart just to talk specifically about in regards to our um, God's desire for us to be discerned between good and evil and what that looks like in our culture today, okay? So anyways, if you're there, uh, Hebrews 5, I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of God and His Word. I entitled our message, Spiritual Immaturity, and hopefully we'll see why as we get to this, the, this verse. Uh, let, let me start at verse 9, just hopefully that helps keep a little bit of context the writer's talking about Jesus and how he is our high priest. He says, Having been perfected, he, being Jesus, became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say. And so that's where we pick up. Hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, and the idea is a baby. But solid food belongs to those who are mature, of full age, that is, those who by reason of use or practice have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. All right, we'll pause there and uh, let's pray. Father, thank you again for a beautiful day. Lord, as we have gathered here in your name, we pray that your spirit would work within us. Grant us ears to hear, heart to obey. Lord, help us to, to fully surrender to you. And Lord, even to make sense of what the writer is saying, and then Lord, how we might live these truths, not just to understand them, but to apply them. And so I thank you, God, for your spirit that leads and guides that ultimately really is our teacher. And so we submit our time of study to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Take a moment, wave at somebody real quick, say hello, elbow bump them. A few of you uh, were out traveling last weekend for the holiday. I hope that you had a great time. Uh, last Sunday, we had our Youth Servant Sunday. It was great. If you missed it, and uh, I want to encourage you this week, if you can, go to the archive on Facebook or our live stream channel and check it out. For me, I, I was really blessed. I know that many in the church expressed the same feeling and sentiment just to see all that God's been doing uh, especially, I mean, working in our church, but especially amongst the young people, our youth group. And, and really that has been uh, just one of the things the Lord has always done here. Uh, we've always just had, a, I believe, just a great, vibrant, healthy youth ministry. And, and personally, I was really blessed by, and if I can say this uh, in a way that's you know, sanctified, I was very proud of Josh. Um, I, I've known Josh since he was a little guy, uh, I think since sixth grade or fifth grade for him, uh, and then watch him grow up both in just, you know, physical maturity as a young man, uh, always with that great smile, uh, through middle school and high school, and then, you know, to see God raise him up, and now he is one of our youth leaders. He is homegrown. God has really just brought him up through. And so I remember the days of giving him a ride as a teenager and making him sit in the very back because he, you know, he, like a lot of teen boys back then, he just put too much Axe body spray on. I'm like, it does not help, bro, just get in the back, you know. And, 
And so it's a blessing, you know, just to see him now. He has real cologne and um, <laughs> serving the Lord. Uh, and not just him. Uh, you know, it's Anna, it's Genoa, it's Kaylee. Um, I even include Chantel in that list. I've known her since she was young. And, and Rachel, you guys might remember, who served with us and got married and has a baby now. And Dylan and Azer. And, in fact, I even include Alex and Jess in that list. I, I've known them since they were uh, in middle school as well and how God has raised them up. And, and, and such a blessing for us as a church to have such a privilege. It's really a gift, uh, I, I consider it, you know, especially for here in Okinawa with the way that our body is and people constantly coming and going, to have a group that we've been able to have a front row seat to watch what God is doing in their lives. It's a blessing. Now understand, not, not everyone is called to uh, a full-time vocational type of ministry, but as I read this passage, I realize, oh, the writer has a pastoral heart. He wants them, he understands God's heart for them to grow. And we may not all have a, a call to full-time ministry. I do believe we're all called to minister. I do believe we're all called to serve one another. We all have a place in the body to use our gifts and talents so we can help all of us grow together. But we are all called to grow in faith. We are all called to move from uh, infancy uh, to adolescence and then even into maturity in the Lord. And that's essentially what the writer of this, uh, the writer here in this section is saying. Uh, he's on a different topic and all of a sudden he kind of just pauses and he's going to address the reader specifically, not on the topic of Jesus as high priest, but from verse 11 all the way to chapter 6, verse 13, He's going to address three important things that are on his heart. And they're a little bit heavy things. Now, again, just by way of reminder, if you're new and you're visiting this morning, and we're blessed that you're here, welcome. Uh, if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, you might already know this, that what the writer is doing is, is he's talking about how Jesus is superior than anything. That he is greater than and fill in the blank. And very specifically, he has been on topic about how Jesus is greater than the high priesthood, greater than Aaron, and how Christ is our eternal high priest. And not only did Jesus fulfill the requirements that God had for the priesthood, but arguably he has exceeded those things. And so all of it is part of this uh, presentation or maybe even an argument to say, listen, Christ is preeminent, and He is completely and absolutely sufficient then for every and any need that you or they or anybody could ever have. And, and He's greater than anything we can place our faith and trust and hope in, and He is more than enough for any need you could ever possibly think of. And why He's saying that is because the Hebrew believers we understand by the whole context of the book is that they were being tempted to go back to their old life. They were tempted to go back to the rituals and the rules and the, the Mosaic law and the sacrificial system. Even after they've entered into a relationship with Christ and so the writer is saying, listen, you don't need to do that. Now that you've come to place faith and hope and life in Christ, Understand that Jesus replaced those things. He fulfilled those things. All of the rituals, all of the furnishings, all of the procedures. Yes, God ordained it. Yes, God gave it. Yes, God prescribed it. But it was temporary. It was, it was a beta until the, the final product came. And Jesus is that final fulfillment. We don't need anything else. And so the writer is explaining, and then specifically then, if God by order of priesthood called a man from amongst men that was to be compassionate and understanding of our frailties and our weaknesses, and called by God, Jesus more so, God who became man, lived amongst men and yet without sin, and still very able completely able to be compassionate and understanding of all of our trials and struggles and temptations. God called him as well. But one unique thing, he didn't come from the order of the Levites. He wasn't part of the Aaronic line. He's the 
line of David. And any good Jew would know, okay, well, if he's not from the line of Aaron, how can he be a high priest? And so the writer's explaining. Well, actually, he's from a higher order. He's from, verse 10, the order of Mechizeldek. So he introduces this name, but then he pauses for a second. He says, listen, I want to unpack this more for you guys, but I can't right now, and here's why. Now, he's going to come back to the whole thought. In chapter 6 at 13, he'll continue to talk about what he's talking about. And then when we get to chapter 7, he's going to open up the whole case about Mechizeldek. But as I mentioned before he gets there, he has three things he wants to talk to them about. One, he wants to talk to them about their spiritual intake, their diet, which has led to a regression. So their, their limited spiritual intake, which has caused a spiritual infancy or immaturity. He wants to then talk about, well, what do we do with that then? Let's not just stay stuck there. He's going to say in the beginning of chapter 6, let's move on. Like, you, you've already passed elementary school. It's time to go and, you know, and go get your letter in high school. Let's go. And then ultimately, he's going to talk about a, a very difficult topic, one which is called spiritual apostasy. And he's going to use these phrases, those who have tasted of the Lord and yet fallen away, and how they can never be enlightened again. And so uh, difficult things, but we'll, we'll plow through them when we get there. But we're going to just take the first one first. And he talks about spiritual infancy and immaturity. What did it mean for them as he's writing it? And of course, what does it mean for us today? So verse 11, he says, Listen, of whom I have much to say, he's talking about the topic of Mechizeldek. I, I want to talk to you more about this priesthood and the uniqueness of Mechizeldek. I have a lot to say about it. So in that phrase, much to say, in one sense, could be true of all Scripture. Right? There's so much more to unpack here. There's so much more to dive into this. The, the writer says, I can't do that yet, not just yet. And in many ways, we could apply that same truth to every single scripture. It's a constant of our biblical truth. Perhaps even a a paradox of our faith, one of many. Jesus says, if you want to be great, you need to learn to be the least. If you want to be the greatest in in kingdom, then you need to be the servant of all. To be first is to be last. You want to find your life, then you need to lose it for his sake. There's other paradoxes. Once we've come to find Christ and we respond to the invitation that God gives us, we still seek after him. Yesterday at men's, uh, Evan was quoting from Paul and his progression of his own walk and how when he began, he said, you know, I, I'm, the, I'm the least of the apostles. Later on in life, he says, well, I'm, I'm the least of the saints. And then close to the end of his life, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. And there's a truth there. There's a paradox. The closer we come to the Lord, the more we realize just how far away we are from Him. The, the more that we, we, we read of God's Word and study His Word, the more we realize, oh man, I, I really don't know that much. And so yes, there's this truth of all Scripture. There is so much more that could be said. And in one way, that's a good thing. The Bible is like this incredible gold mine deep, and if and in one sense, without end. And God has invited us to, with this amazing privilege to explore and to unpack and to extract all of the riches of God's grace. Paul says to the Philippians, the unsearchable riches of Christ Jesus, the idea that it's inexhaustible. We'll never get to the end of the glory and the goodness and the beauty and the majesty of our Savior. Oh, and how we need to have that mindset when we come to the Word of God and the things of God. You guys ever watch that? It's a U.S. TV show, so for our Japanese, body gomenne. It's a TV show called American Pickers. Anybody ever watch that show? I like watching that show. Those two guys, they travel on a van. And, uh, and, and they're usually in the East Coast, at least when I've watched it. And they'll go to like old antique shops or barns or an estate sale. And if you've watched it, you know, 
you know, they'll climb up into attics, they'll climb into the back of an old barn, and, and they're looking for something of value. Sometimes it's just an old thing or a trinket, but then they're like, oh, this is, you know, really valuable, and there's a little history lesson, so it's kind of fun. I always thought, how cool it would be to do like a Japanese pickers, because there's some cool stuff in Japan. I wouldn't want to do it in Okinawa, though, with the humidity and the mold and the, the spiders and the haboos, right? But somewhere up north, that'd be fun. Find old samurai helmet or sword, you know. Listen, the word of God is like a never-ending treasure chest. There's always more to be explored. There's always more to say. There's always more to be enjoyed. We can never exhaust its riches. He says, you know, I have more to say. And then he says this, but it's hard to explain. Now, we're going to find out why. There's a reason. He's going to give the reason why it's hard to explain. But again, that statement by itself can also stand alone. That statement can also be true of of Bible concepts, of things that we come to. Sometimes we read it and like, man, that's hard to explain. That's hard to understand. What what does the writer mean? What is God trying to say here? And by the way, as a side note, I I'm not discouraged by that. In one sense, I'm actually encouraged and comforted by the fact that I can't completely understand all that the Bible is saying. It, it just helps to prove to me that this was divinely inspired and not written by mere men, right? If we could understand all of it, then we would say, okay, well, I understand everything of God. And yet the Bible says of itself and of the Lord God says, my ways aren't your ways and my thoughts aren't your thoughts. They're higher as, as the heavens are much higher than the earth, Isaiah 55, 6. So my thoughts, so my ways are yours. And I think, thank you, God. And so there are times where I read something like, man, that's rough. I don't understand that. I, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jesus. You ever taken one of those uh, intelligence tests, IQ tests? Anybody ever taken Remember a couple of years ago, it was kind of a trend on Facebook. Like there was this whole trend of tests you could take, like what, which friend's character are you, you know, or you know, which, which Avengers are you? And then there was one where people were taking IQ tests. And some of my friends would take it and then publish their results. Right? And then I take it, I'm like, I'm not publishing my results. <laughs> uh, I'm embarrassed by my results. Your cat would do better than me in my, you know, these tests. And some of you, I've talked with you, you're brilliant. There's some smart people in our church. But listen, as smart as you are, and maybe whatever SAT score you scored or your IQ tests understand, I say this in love, you're a dum-dum compared to God. His intelligence, his brilliance. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he kind of asks these rhetorical questions. He says, uh, Where's the wisdom of the wise men of this world? Where's the, where's the philosophy, the philosopher of this age? Where's the teacher? He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And he goes on to say, and the foolishness of God is actually wiser than the wisdom of men. Now God was pleased just to lay out this simple gospel. And so God's foolishness, if you will, right? It's wiser than men's wisdom. And so, yes, there are times where we come to Scripture and like, this is hard. This is a difficult thing. We can't fully understand it. We, you know, Paul says how we understand in part. And that's okay. I mean, even Peter says of Paul's writings in 2 Peter 3.16, I'll paraphrase, he says, man, that guy, sometimes the way that he writes, he writes real deep. And the things that he writes, they're hard to understand. Sometimes they're so hard that there are people who don't really understand, make an attempt, and yet they twist it and they distort it to the ruin of the hearer, he says, to their own destruction. And so, yeah, that happens sometimes. It's hard to understand. And by the way, that's why I want to submit to you, there are, there are different doctrinal views on things. That's why, you know, we have, uh, you know, sometimes just different flavors within the body of Christ and uh, you know, one group that has a certain view about, you know, salvation and another group has a little different view. It's because we, we find these concepts that are 
they're kind of hard. God's infinite. We're finite. We are limited. Our perspective and our understanding, it has a limit. And again, I don't, I don't, I'm not discouraged by that. I'm comforted by that. In fact, when we get into chapter 6 and verses uh, 4 through 6, where he says it's impossible that once you've been enlightened to ever, uh, you know, be partakers of the Holy Spirit, like, that's a hard verse. We'll have Alex teach that section when we get there, you know, so. So there are hard things, but understand he's not saying the material's hard this time. He's saying, I have a lot to say. I can't say it yet. It's hard to explain, and the reason it's hard to explain isn't because he has an inability to articulate. Sometimes I do. It isn't because the material's lofty like quantum physics. That's not the case. The case is because you have become dull of hearing, he says. The listener is the problem. It's not the weight of the lesson, it's the willingness of the listener. You've become dull of hearing. Now I want you to notice a couple things just in that phrase, okay? First of all, notice for me that it's a change that has happened. The emphasis in that statement is you used to be something, now you're not that anymore. As though you weren't dull before, but now you have become dull. Dull of hearing, dull of listening, dull of understanding. Understanding what? Well, context why the Word of God, the oracles of God. Your Bible might translate it lazy. In the original Greek, it's this word that means sluggish or slow. Your translation might say slow to understand. It's the same word that he uses in chapter 6, verse 12, where he He's exhorting them, listen, don't become sluggish in your faith. Don't become lazy in your walk with the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, uh, when I read this, if I insert myself as the audience, I get a little offended. It it stings a little bit. It's a little bit of a rebuke. I want to drop some knowledge on you. I have more to say. It's hard to explain. I'm like, yeah, it is hard to explain. No, it's because you're lazy and listening. Ooh. The situation here is that they become distracted and disinterested. Their appetite for spiritual things had diminished. And what's the result of that? Regression. They went backwards. Can you understand this? A very clear sign that you and I are going backwards is if you and I have no appetite for the things of God. When that begins to happen, guess what? You are on a route to slide backwards. And dullness is dangerous. If we become tone deaf to the truth of God's word, of the scripture, do not be surprised. We cannot be surprised if you and or if I all of a sudden wreck and crash our life. If we've turned off our ear and turned off our interest to the things of God. Now the writer doesn't tell us what drew their attention away. The writer doesn't say what were the circumstances that all of a sudden they're not feeding themselves, they're not having a proper spiritual diet. Whatever it was for them, it was true in their life and I think even though it's not said directly, we, we can understand. We, we live with the same danger. We live with the same type of temptations. There are things in your life and mine every day that vie for your attention, that are not godly. And sometimes maybe they're not even sinful, because later on in chapter 12, he's going to say, let's lay aside every sin and wait Sometimes there's just things in your life that weigh you down. Categorically, you wouldn't say, oh, that's sin, but God says to you that's not helpful. Right? Netflix in itself isn't sinful, unless you're watching sinful stuff, right? Scrolling on your electronic device, all your Pinterest boards, those in themselves aren't sinful, but if they become the thing in which consumes your time and your energy and your heart, to the neglect of the Word of God, then it moves into that category. 
how easily we can fill our time, how easily we can fill our mind and our imaginations, the things that we entertain ourselves with. Again, gang, I, I'm as just as guilty. Don't think I'm standing up here uh, as though I'm not guilty and susceptible to these things. There, there are hundreds of avenues for us to be distracted to the things of the world. And, and it is like any time that you might go to a friend's house or your family's and there's a meal and it's going to be a good meal and they put out all the appetizers in the front. And if you fill up on all those snacks ahead of time, often you have no appetite for the main course. Right? If you and I fill our minds and our hearts and soul with the junk food of the world, no wonder we have no appetite for the things of God. When it's time to open the word and have devotion, you're like, nah, I don't want to do that. I'll do that later. And by means of neglect, they slid into this precarious place. And it caused me to wonder. Again, the writer doesn't say, so I'm going to take a little bit of conjecture. Just bear with me. We do know by greater context, the Hebrew Christians were struggling with being tempted to go back to their old life. They're struggling with the idea of, of their assurance and faith and what Christ has accomplished versus their activities by their good works. That's what they were used to. And so they had this struggle of what's right and what's real and what's my identity and I wondered if they struggled with that because they hadn't been locked in on the Word of God. They weren't reading the Scriptures. And because of that, now their mind, now their heart, now it's played out in their relationships. They find themselves being tossed and turned with these desires. Society, tradition, those things were pulling them. And we, we struggle with the same things what to believe. And so I, I want to say this in love, but please understand, church family, simple, good, solid Bible study is so important. Good doctrine, good theology, what we study and think about God, it's so important for our life. It provides an anchor for us. If we know and think right about God and His love for us and His nature then we're going to think right then about who we are and God's purposes in our life. It enables us then to, to stay steadfast. Because I don't have to convince you, the world is in this flux and sway constantly. It's a typhoon of ideologies and philosophies and thoughts and trends. And I have friends and family, you do too, and even people who, you know, part of the church, and all of a sudden they, they're getting swayed by this. They're getting sucked into the pool of the world and worldly thinking and beginning to believe things that are not scriptural. And so it's good to come back. Who is God and what does God say who we are and our worth and our value and it's not found then in follows and likes and shares. It's not found, if I can say this in respect, it's not found in the number of ribbons that you wear on your chest or the stripes on your sleeve. See, God's word provides this true light and lamp for our path and for our life. It provides a perspective for the world around us. It's been through the word that we understand as we watch the world go to Hades in a handbasket with everything that's happening. We, we get a perspective then to understand why is there disease? Why are there dissensions? All the D words. Why is there divorce? And, uh, and why is there death? And then it equips us to navigate those turbulent waters of life. It gives us a bearing. We're not crushed by those things. To understand that God has a divine purpose and plan for those things. 
not just in your neighborhood, but for the nations. And so we watch nations that go to war, and we watch this growing trend of a one-world currency and one-world government and a one-world religion. Oh, the Bible, we open up and we have a filter to understand exactly what's happening. And so we don't want to become dull of hearing. The writer says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. So an emphasis that they were once in a different place and now they've gone backwards. Teach you again the basic, the first principles of the oracles of God. Notice that phrase, he says, By this time you ought to have been, you should be teachers. And I put myself in the writer's place. I imagine, one, it was hard for the readers to hear that. Like, no one likes to be told, hey, you're lazy. And then he's going to, you know, if that didn't uh, ignite them, he's going to tell them in verse 13, you're a bunch of babies. And it's a very graphic picture. You should be eating carne asada, but you're, uh, you're in a diaper drinking a baby bottle. Right? Be like, what? You want to go outside? cuts to the heart. But I also imagine it's probably uncomfortable for the writer to have to say it. I mean, evidently he loves them, he's concerned for them, it's a pastoral concern. And I, I point that out just to say, you know, sometimes you guys, it, we need a spiritual kick in the pants. Sometimes we need someone to come and get in our face in a loving way to say, hey, uh, I don't think you should be doing what you're doing. And yes, if you're like me, my flesh is like, what? Mind your own business. But the reality is maybe there's some truth there. Maybe God sent that person to say, hey. And that's good. That's healthy for us. We need that in our life to spur each other on. Because the reality is our tendency is, well, we're, we're lazy. We're sluggish. And so we need to be spurred on. We need to be encouraged on in this race of faith. And because God loves you, He sends people to say these things sometimes. What is this verse really conveying for us in simplicity, this phrase, you ought to be at this place by this time? Here's what it conveys. God has an expectation for you, and the expectation is that you would grow. That you would grow over time. Notice with me, he doesn't say how much time. He doesn't say, hey, it's three years already. You're about the PCS. Where are you? He doesn't say five. He doesn't give a, a specific of time. He just says, at this time. So there's an expectation, though, that they would be at a certain level, and yet they're not. They're, they're like students who uh, were getting ready to graduate, they got their cap and gown, and all of a sudden, they had to go back to kindergarten, not even kindergarten, they had to go back to the nursery. Like, give me your cap and gown, and here is formula for you to drink. Whatever progress they made, it's gone. And how it was gone, I don't know. Distracted, disinterested? Part of me understands a little bit in the natural I've shared this with you guys, most of you know. Yeah, I grew up here in Okinawa. My mom's Okinawan. My dad, he was uh, Air Force. And so I lived at, I was born at uh, Lester Hospital and went to Kadena Elementary and Kadena High School. And so as often as my dad could get back to Okinawa, we, we did because of my mom. And so I lived some in the States, but I lived most of my growing up was here in Okinawa. And so in the summers, I would spend my summers and every extended holiday over at my Okinawan grandparents' house, my Oji and my Oba. My cousins, my aunt and uncle, they live right next door. So we're, all, we're always there hanging out. And it was good during those times. It, I, much of my Japanese, I got to learn that way and a lot of Okinawan cuss words, and, but, you know, because my grandpa yelling at us. And then after high school, when I moved, I, I went to Southern California, and I didn't have as much opportunity to, uh, to share or to, you know, speak in Japanese. On occasion, I did. 
But when I lived there, a lot of people just assumed I was Hispanic, and so everyone just started speaking Spanish to me, which I was like, oh, that's cool. But that's why some of you, I, you know, I, I just know like California slang Spanish, you know, orale and right? chupacabra and what else? Chancla, that's all I know, that's it. Right? So when I moved back to Okinawa 20 years ago, my grandma and grandpa were still alive at that time, and I walked into their house, that same house, and they started talking to me, and I'm like, ah, no sé. <laughs> you know this symbol, Okinawan symbol? They got ang- they're like, what? They got angry. Oh, my grandma was so disappointed I'd forgotten so much Japanese. I still remembered all the Okinawan cuss words, though, but anyway. <laughs> I regressed. I'd gone backwards. And I had to, like, pull out the katakana, trace the letters and the hiragana, and, you know, go through all that again. So I understand part of that in the natural. We don't use it, we'll lose it. But listen, this wasn't just a second language for these guys. This was their, their walk with the Lord. It was their spiritual health. That's something we don't want to lose. We don't want to go backwards in that. And so they moved from maturity to immaturity. You've become dull of hearing. You need to be taught again. That whole phrase, the... the, the um, Basic principles or the first principles of the oracles of God, it basically means the ABCs of your faith. (laughs) The foundational truths. And again, he calls them in verse 13, your babies. Oh, by, by the way, too, please understand, he is not holding them accountable to the things they didn't know. There's a grace here. You know, sometimes we can... Uh, I've met people, and maybe even for us, right? We can begin to feel guilty to think, oh man, I've been a Christian a long time. I don't know these things. Well, if you've never been taught these things, then you don't know them. And please know there's no condemnation, right? The Bible says there's no condemnation for, for us in Christ Jesus. But if we're spurred, if we're convicted, that's good. That's a good thing. God wants us to grow. But please understand God puts us on, we have our own lane, and we have a place, and we have a pace in which we are to run. And sometimes people run quicker than us. That's both true in real life, and that's true spiritually. There's sometimes people that, you know, all of a sudden they're just excited for the things of God, and you watch them, and then, whew, you know, they're young in the Lord, but man, they have, they're just growing. And so we don't want to make the mistake of, uh, of comparison to the point where we get then depressed or bummed. We're, we are to spur each other on. That's a good thing. Encourage each other. But understand, some people are at a quicker pace than you. Here, here's the question. I understand if God expects us to grow over time, here's the question. Have you grown in the Lord since last month? Have you grown in the Lord since uh, June of last year? For you, relative to you, where you were five years ago or maybe ten years ago? Like, is our orientation towards growth? Notice, too, that their disinterest not only impaired in the sense their, their maturity, but it also impaired their their ability to share their faith with others. He says, at this time, you should be teaching. You should be sharing this stuff. You should be the one letting other people know about Jesus and how he's the great high priest, how he is greater than anything, and and he fulfills all the Old Testament. This is stuff that you should be sharing with your friends and your neighbors but because they didn't have an appetite for the things of God, it impacted their witness. And, and that's true for all of us. You can't give out what you don't have. And I would say likewise, if you find yourself not talking about the things of God very much, not talking about Jesus and what God's doing in your life today, I, I encourage you to take a look at then where your devotion life is. Because generally speaking, we usually talk about the things that have grabbed our attention. Movies and meals and memes and cafes. 
I'm the same. I, you know, people are always like, why are you posting your food pictures? I'm like, because people like it. You know? I'm excited about it. But I want to be excited about my faith in the Lord. I want to be excited about what God's been teaching me, what God's doing in my family, what God's doing in our church. I'm excited. So what has God been speaking to you? Hopefully you can answer that question. It it impacted their ability to share. They, They ought to have been teachers by now, but you need someone to teach you again the first principles. And notice he uses this analogy, you've come to need milk and not solid food. Again, notice he says, you need someone to teach you again. It's stuff that they, it's a class they already took. You know, back in verse 9, the author, the writer says of Jesus, he says, Jesus is the author of our eternal salvation. That means he's the source, he's the initiator, he's the completer, he's the sustainer, the alpha and the omega. Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, here's what I'm confident of, here's what I know for sure about your life. God who began a good work in you, he's going to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. But even though he says that, understand we're not just passive. We don't just sit, all right, God, do your thing with me. You know, it's not like osmosis. I'm going to learn the word of God now. That's why I shaved my head, so it just goes there quicker. It's a dynamic in which we, he says, he's the author to all who obey him. And so there's a partnership there. Well, God initiates. Don't get me wrong. God is the one who puts things into motion. Uh, Even the reason we love God is because he first loved us. And so what we do then becomes a response, right? Our obedience, I hope that you know this, our obedience doesn't earn our salvation. Our obedience exhibits it. It's the fruit of it. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And so all who obey, so there's a, there's a partnership that happens there. Again, we're not passive. We're called to be active. Paul says in Philippians 2, he says, it's God who works in you. So it's God who works in you to do what then? To give you the will and then to act according to his good pleasure. Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 15, verse 10, he says, I am, but I am, I am what I am by the grace of God. Almost like Popeye, right? I am what I am. I am what I am by the grace of God. And then he adds this interesting phrase. God's grace to me wasn't in vain, and I labored more than everybody else. I hustled. He says, but it wasn't just me. It was God who's working in me. Can you understand this? We will not drift into maturity. Just like we don't drift into holiness, we don't drift into maturity. We... We have to determine to pursue it. Because to stand still is to slide back. There needs to be an active, engaged, intentional, open your Bible and read. Get on your knees and pray. They needed to be taught the basics of their faith. He says, you've come to need milk. See, I like that food analogy. I, I identify milk. He's using milk as an analogy of the basics of the Bible and not solid food. He's basically saying this, and it's a very vivid picture. He says, you know, right now you should have already graduated cap and gown, have your diploma, setting out in the life. But nope, you got to go back to the nursery and sit in a diaper and drink baby bottles. That, that's a little bit of a disturbing picture. You should be at the big boy's table eating food, solid food. You move from the formula and graduates, guess what? You're, you're eating real food. And someone's warming up a milk bottle for you. And notice again how it's phrased. It's phrased, you've come to need it. You've come to need it. The idea is that they can't handle anything else. They can't digest or 
or process the, com- the complex things. And so what type of person only needs milk? Well, an immature person, a baby. It's appropriate for a baby. It's not appropriate for my 22-year-old to only drink milk. I mean, Peter says, as newborn babes, let's desire the pure milk of the Word that we might grow thereby. And so there's an element where, yeah, we, we want to, the basics are good. It's good for us to come back and remember how we're saved by faith in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, right? Christ alone, by the Word of God alone. It's a gift of God. Those are basics. Jesus came. He was God. He became a man. He was born and He died. And He died on a cross for you and for me. And if we place our faith in that, then we'll be saved. It's good to remember and live the gospel and preach the gospel again. But of course, we want to move on beyond that. Because it's abnormal for a grown person to just constantly be drinking from a baby bottle. Even for babies, it, it's natural for them. After they move beyond baby, you know, milk and a baby bottle, right? You've ever eaten solid food next to a kid that's kind of in that age? They will reach for what you're eating. I'm like, oh, you want this burger? And if, if, and if it's me, I'll give them to the burger. I'm like, all right. Uncle Rick's going to be your first solid food right here. There we go. But to go backwards is not right. And it gives an alarm, and, and that's exactly what happened here. It wasn't a good thing. And by the way, it wasn't because of it's self-induced. You understand? It was self-inflicted. They had every opportunity. They had the greatest of potential. You should have been. By this time, this is where you should have been. And so what's the application? Carne asada is good. No. We need milk of God's word, and we also need the solid food. We need the meat of God's word to grow. All right, we're going to pause there. I feel like the author. I have much more to say. We're going to come back next week, verse 13 and 14. And as I mentioned, I think in the beginning, I want to give a little extra attention, especially when we get to verse 14 and we talk about how it's important for us to exercise these things so that we can discern between good and evil. And what does that look like in our culture and world today? Now, there is this, there's always been a false gospel, and it has different shapes. There's always been a false spirituality, and it seems to me that in this day and age, man, the subtleness of what's called progressive Christianity, the embrace of the world's culture and ideology by Christians within the church. Gang, we, we have to be careful. And so I want to give some, a little extra time to talk about those things that I believe are pertin- pertinent for our time and world today. But uh, we're going to have communion. And so I'm going to invite you uh, during the time of worship to partake of the bread and partake of the cup as you feel led during this time. Just because of COVID, we've been doing this for the last year. When you're served, it's going to be two cups. They're stacked, so just be a little careful. The top has the juice. The bottom will have your cracker, the, the element of bread in, in the cup. And then as we're worshiping, I want to give you freedom just to partake as you feel led. The Bible tells us this, that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he sat down with the disciples. The meal that he sat down with was already a very important, symbolic, significant time for the Jewish people. It was a time that they remembered how God delivered their ancestors from bondage in Egypt in that whole night in the process. Jesus takes that and he amplifies that. And he says, guess what? This bread is my body. This cup is my blood. And And he amplifies it to talk about how then we have been freed from spiritual bondage when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we partake 
The scripture says we partake to remember what he's done for us, to remember who we belong to, and to remember that he's coming back. Paul gives a warning to the Corinthian church. They got a lot of things goofy. And one of the things they got a little goofy was the Lord's Supper. They turned it into just get drunk and, uh, and just stuff their faces. And he says, ah, my paraphrase, you guys are wacky. Here's why we do this. You need to come back and, and have a little reverence. Don't make it just a mere ceremony. And allow the Spirit to search your heart to make sure that you partake in the right way. And so that's what we want to do. Okay? All right. Father, thank you for the morning. We pray even as the worship team comes and the ushers prepare to serve the elements. Lord, we thank you for these truths today. You expect us to grow. Lord, you're the initiator, but we have to respond. We don't just drift into maturity. God, help us cultivate in us a hunger and a thirst for the things of you. God, forgive us for snacking on the junk food of the world. And Lord, if we find ourselves in a place where we're going backwards, thank you that today we can just repent and turn and move towards you. God, we need your milk and we need the meat that we might grow in grace. Lord, as we come now to our time of communion, though it might be short, I pray it would be sweet, it would be sincere as we have a time just to spend with you, that Holy Spirit, you would search our hearts, and God, that just the stupid things that we've done and said, that we confess that, we'd be real with you and ourselves, that we turn from that and leave it where it belongs, the foot of the cross, and Lord, to grow today, to respond to your spirit that calls us to leave the world and move on from even basic things. Today is the day. And so, Lord, as we partake of the bread, we remember your body that was broken for us. As we partake of the cup, may we think about your life, the blood that was shed so that we can be and are forgiven of past, present, and future sin. And to know, Lord, our worth, the love of God that you would call us your kids. And so, Lord, we give you this time now in communion. In Jesus' name, amen.